The Guardian. Welcome to The Week in Review. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Coming up, ignored, neglected and left to suffer in pain. We look at the damning report that spells out just how badly the NHS is failing elderly patients. Also in the podcast, with Sylvia Berlusconi on the brink of bunger bungering his way into court and out of office, we ask, where are all the mavericks in our politics? And, on your marks, get set, moan. We look forward to a very British Olympic Games as the schedule's announced for London 2012. This is the Week in Review from The Guardian. And joining me in the studio this week is an elite selection of the great and the good from what we like to think of as the Graniverse. Jay Rayner is the Observer's restaurant critic, Hugh Muir edits the Guardian's diary column, and Maeve Kennedy is a special writer on the Guardian's arts desk. Thank you all for being here. We usually start by asking for a favourite headline or story from the last seven days, but Jay, we're going to start with you because all of us are collectively jealous of your day job. I want to know what is the best thing you've eaten all week. The best thing I've eaten all week... Um, actually, it was something I cooked at home. I'm sorry, just by was. yourself. Yeah, because uh, this week has been rather strange. I came back from a trip to the States and then I went to Birmingham. And I'm <laughs> sorry, I was never going to eat well there. It just was the audience just gone. Yeah. Right there. Well, look, they know. They live there. Um, <laughs> so then I cooked some Thai fish cakes with a, a spicy peanut sauce at home for a recipe from a great cook called Ravinda Bogle. Really? So you actually do cook home? This is very impressive. So people, well, just I, I people picture you just dining out and then it's cornflakes at home the rest of the time. No, no, no. I'm a greedy man who can't actually afford to eat in restaurants every night. There, there, I remember when I was a kid, there was an interview with Woody Allen in which he said he ate in restaurants every night. And I, I must have been nine or ten. And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. Unfortunately, I can't afford to do that, so sometimes I have to cook the good stuff myself. I you were going to say, unfortunately, there's some other things that went with Woody Allen's life that, were, <laughs> that you didn't want to replicate. Maeve, is there anything special that you've eaten or some other thing that's maybe caught your eye, a headline pack? I just like the th- thought of Jay's friends all coming around and marking him out of ten and being incredibly rude about the drapes and the chairs. <laughs> I hope they do. <laughs> and leaving then four or three stars on the door yes, as exactly. they leave. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> not I, really where I, I never get door. invited round to anybody else's house for dinner. If you I'm were. completely <laughs> amazed at that. But that's nothing so. to do with cooking or food. <laughs> no, no, go on, Maeve. I thought it was a very grim week, really. And there was just such a simple, small story that I loved. It's one of those headlines that tells the whole story. Police seek owner of size 21 trainers. This is a pair of brand new (laughs) Nike basketball boots, red and white, in their shoebox, found in a service station. Size 21. I take a size 6. My son, who's regarded as having very big feet, takes a size 8. I just had this picture of a kind of Jack the Giant killer. Thump, 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 thump. And they look up from the desk in the Derbyshire police station. They say, he's come for his boots. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that the police associated with the message was police are looking for a man with big feet. <laughs> I, I thought that was going to be the next bit of the story. Hugh, what's caught your eye? Well, my favourite story, um, so forgive the obvious self-promotion, but um, we, we put it in, in uh, the diary, and it, it involves an attempt by the Royal Military Police to investigate uh, allegations of wrongdoing by the security services in Iraq, and they thought, well, we don't want to do the investigation in Iraq, we'll do it in Lebanon. And so they moved to Lebanon, and all of the people who were complaining about uh, 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 being abused went to, to Lebanon too. Um, the problem is they didn't tell the Lebanese authorities. So they took a lot of surveillance equipment with them, tape recording stuff, audio stuff, which was immediately impounded at the airport. Um, the authorities then let them go to their hotel, which they thought, oh, well, fine, we can get on with it. At which point, the Lebanese military found out that they were there as well. So it wasn't as low key as they were hoping. And a very angry general turned up to talk to them about it. And the first they knew he was there when they looked out the window and there was a tank. <laughs> 
So we've got two out of three stories about police incompetence, one way or another. Well, yeah, I mean, it tells you a bit about our place in the world. You know, we obviously do have a lot of clout when we go abroad, but it's not quite what it was. All right, well, from that, we'll start this week with a shocking report into the treatment of elderly people by the NHS. The health ombudsman outlined ten cases in which patients over the age of 65 were ignored, neglected and left to suffer in pain. The general conclusion of the Care and Compassion report was that the health service fails to treat older people in hospital with either dignity or respect. Now, Jay, forgive us if we come to you first. Your late mother, Claire, who you all loved very much, was, of course, a huge champion of the NHS and particularly of patients and patient care. What do you think she would have made of this report? Um, No surprise there, then is the honest answer. She was, she was president of the Patients' Association. The Patients' Association revealed a report, which I wrote the forward to, in my mother's place back in February, which is exactly the same. And there was another report at the beginning of last year, which was exactly the same. And my mother sat on the uh, Royal Commission on Care of the Elderly back during the Blair years, which pointed out all of this stuff. And so it goes. There is a bottom line, which is um, caring for elderly people is not an attractive business. If you're in paediatrics, it's lovely. You're dealing with children, and although some children can be ghastly and some wonderful, basically you're seeing lives uh, into the future. Caring for the elderly is not like that, and it requires a serious kind of compassion, and increasingly it appears to be in short supply. People don't like doing it, and they do it very badly. We can't ask you to channel the voice of your mother, although it's interesting you wrote the forward in her place there, but some people will find it hard. How did she manage to square the two where she was on the one hand noting these deficiencies in the NHS, elderly people being treated badly, and yet simultaneously a huge champion of the NHS, and her last words are a declaration of love and support for the NHS. Was there a tension between those two things? Absolutely not. No, she, uh, she could love it while being its staunchest critic. And I think actually a lot of it, you know, she became a nurse pretty much as the NHS was born and then retained an involvement in it uh, through her agony column and then later in life as a non-executive director of a major hospital trust and then sitting on various commissions. She was a part of the NHS as much as a commentator on it. Um, and, you know, she could see it for all its flaws. And what she wanted was a very good public health service. Um, and where she saw it lacking, she said so. Uh, Maeve, there were there's some very horrible details in this report. It's very, very horrifying. Patients who didn't get adequate food or water or left in soiled clothes and there's a story of one woman who wasn't offered a bath or shower for 13 weeks what what, what's your uh, guess at what's uh, the explanation for this kind of thing do you go with what jay's saying just the job itself is very unattractive i think the job is very unattractive i think the pressures at all levels of the nhs now are just extraordinary and this week's announcements of hospitals laying off 500 staff 650 staff 800 staff you cannot feel that these pressures are going to get much less at any level of care I've always felt in this country that if you're going to get sick, you ought to get really dreadfully collapsed in a heap sick because on the whole, I don't know what Jay's found, but I think critical care is very good. They will move like grease lightning. They will do extraordinary things. Boring day in, day out, every day tedious, not necessarily going to be a happy ending. Care is dreadful. My godson was in hospital just before Christmas, in the snow before Christmas. Now, he's a fit young opera singer who was having his tonsils out. We're not talking life and death. But nevertheless, they tried to send him home to an empty flat 12 hours after surgery. He's a student and all the other students were gone for Christmas and his parents couldn't get there through the snow. Duncan's a fighting spirit and they didn't manage to discharge him but in the bed opposite him there was an elderly man whom they did manage to get rid of they were clearing the ward for christmas 
He was so fragile, you could practically have read the paper through him. He was so ill that two friends came in and literally carried him with one shoulder under each of his shoulders out of the ward and he was being sent home to an empty flat. If he made it through Christmas, I'd be absolutely amazed. I mean, some of the conclusions that people have been drawing from stories like that one we just heard from Maeve is that there's a specific problem relating to the NHS or to healthcare and maybe the remedy is training and people have got to learn new approaches to older people. The other view is actually this is not peculiar to the NHS and this says something wider about our society and the way we see older people. What do you well, look, I mean, the first thing that people were saying was uh, the, the hardy perennial bring back matron and, uh, you know, that you really need some, some controlling force within the ward to make sure But it seems like a more human thing uh, that if somebody's very parched and dry, you know, just as a human instinct, you would want to get the cup of water by their side and raise it to their lips. You know, you don't need a course or matron to tell you to well, do Well, that. of course you should, but systems should work, but they mm. don't always work and that's why you have supervisory people to make sure that they do uh, I think the, the, the reason that these sort, this sort of report has force is that it chimes with people and, and for me I, I thought back to my aunt who was dying of cancer in a hospital um, a couple of years ago and we went to see her and there were no kind of extreme examples um, as are laid out in this report but you looked around at the way other people in the ward were being treated and it was a geriatric ward and you uh, and people who didn't have visitors with them and you just thought there's a time lag between them asking for something and them getting the nurse's mm. attention. And the nurses are, you know, they're having a conversation, but they're finishing their conversation between themselves before they go and attend to the elderly person. Um, and and some, you just felt that there was a lack of warmth about some of it. Um, and, and, and so when you read reports like this, you, know, you don't find them entirely surprising. And to broaden it out a bit, when, when you say, uh, what does this tell us about uh, you know, the sort of people who go into this and, and how we should view this sort of service? The conclusion I drew from that is that if you have someone who's vulnerable um, in a hospital, when you, when you avail yourself of that public service, you really have to more or less conduct surveillance of your own. <laughs> You know, if you've got an old relative in there, then you really need to be in that hospital. I've always noticed that myself when you visit yourself, and I deliberately make a point of wearing a suit, for example, when I visit an elderly relative, because they seem to snap to attention. They think, oh, we're getting, you know, a consultant or someone's coming around to look. Jay, what are you going to say? Actually, part of the problem is to do with the change in medical training in hospitals, designed around breaking down old class barriers where doctors did really technical stuff and nurses did things like hospital corners and got the food to the patients. Over the past 30 years, what's changed is that nurses are, now trained far more in the technical stuff. They give injections, they can put in catheters, they can put in cannulas into hands, all of that sort of stuff. Very, very intense technical training. What's been lost, and certainly what my mother's view has been lost, was the stuff that she was taught, which was about compassion in nursing. Funnily enough, um, in about a week's time, two weeks' time, I'm going out to Huddersfield University, where a scholarship is uh, for a PhD uh, by Huddersfield University is being launched in my mother's name and entrants specifically have to be looking at the value of compassion in nursing. And if anywhere needs it, it's in the care of geriatrics. But is something going wrong in the society where we have to teach people to be care about older people beyond just the health sector, Maeve? I'm I just thinking, there, is there an attitude problem there is. towards our to elders? I say, almost every time I visited somebody in hospital recently, there will be somebody with a big Asian family in the ward and the whole family moves in. They bring in food, they bring in wet flannels, they take over all the nursing care, they refuse to be thrown out, they're there day and night, they settle down and they bring their knitting and they bring their books. And there will be some diffident little old lady all by herself with a visitor maybe for half an hour a day 
pleading with everybody not to make a fuss. And if her visitors did come and tried to take over, she would be horrified and embarrassed. And the visitors would be horrified and embarrassed. And I've I've seen people worried about even looking at the notes at the foot of the hospital bed in case this is in some way a gross breach of what they are supposed to do. I think increasingly we're going to have to treat hospitals as anybody who's around is going to have to come in and help and do the things like sort the hospital corners. You know, it's quite nice just to get bloodstained pillowcases out of the way and change for something else. Hugh. What you're perhaps looking at is the end of deference in terms of how we view those public services because, you know, you, you wanted to, to intervene there, Maeve, and, and you felt slightly reticent about doing so. Um, but I think that everyone has to do that. And it's the same with schools as well. Um, I mean, certainly within the black community, I mean, there's a sense that if you send your, 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 certainly your black boy to a state school you'd better get in there and you'd better you maybe stop one go one stop just short of stalking mm-hmm. um, but make sure that you're there to fully monitor what is going on and I think hospitals are much the same when you read a report like this this probably have to be where we close it but does it make you feel not that you just not only dread going into hospital but in some ways dread becoming much older because of the way these attitudes are out there Jay uh, I have to say my my eldest son was in hospital for a month last year and the treatment was absolutely fantastic I do think it is about distinguishing the areas, of the, the, the group in society that's being treated. It is not... We can't claim the whole of the NHS is appalling. No, but for that reason, it may mean that we should start dreading being old, because if they're the ones who are going to get... Oh, the... I'm dreading being old anyway, mate. <laughs> mate. <laughs> yes, I feel it coming on a pace. I don't see any of it that looks good. And all the elderly people who live near me are terrified, like in Victorian times, of going into hospital. You know, they would rather die quietly at home than be taken into hospital. I've just come back not so long ago from Jamaica... Um, which is a, a you know, poor country with terrible problems, but just has a different mindset towards older people. Um, and you see people there, and they just they just don't look as stressed, they don't look as worried. Um, and I, so this goes much beyond hospitals. I think we have to think about how we how we think about older people in our society. The week in review with Jonathan Friedland. He stood trial for bribery and embezzlement. He controls a giant slab of the country's media and he recently billed the taxpayer €70,000 for a magnificent new magnetic penis. The penis was for an ancient statue living in the office of the Italian Prime Minister. No, not him, but for an actual statue. The point is, Silvia Berlusconi seems to march to a different drum from your average European head of government. This week, the 75-year-old billionaire found himself in yet more hot water. You'd probably quite enjoy that, actually, hot water. As he was sent for trial, accused of paying for sex with an underage prostitute at one of his infamous Bunga Bunga parties. Maeve Kennedy, you've been a political sketch writer. You're one of uh, Hugh's predecessors on the diary column. What are we to make of this character? Oh... Dear, well, the feminist in me thinks how absolutely, utterly appalling these people should not exist and they shouldn't be encouraged and they shouldn't get any publicity. The journalist in me thinks, what larks, eh? I mean, he's like (laughs) something out of a musical sketch. And you do look around and you see a very grey world here of people in grey suits, you know, where even somebody like Ed Miliband says the only reason he hasn't got married is because he hasn't had time, he's been so busy doing policy statements and as soon as he gets a break in his policy statements, he'll get married. I don't actually want bunga bunga parties in Westminster Hall, but a bit more kind of yo hi. <laughs> yeah, a bit more. Of, I mean, he did say to people who were outraged by his latest antics, you know, would you rather have a gay prime minister? As, <laughs> uh, that was as if as if that would somehow endear him to more people. But he does sort of does he, uh, Jay, add to the gaiety of nations having this character out there? Well, you need one of them, don't you? 
Um, there's, I mean, there's, there's another one out there. The, the great story uh, in the Guardian about the president of Chechnya uh, is going to take to the football field to lead his own country's team against the Brazilian World Cup team. The uh, absolute complete narcissistic overload of that is fantastic i think we do need more of them I, in the in the 97 election i was charged to uh, pursue alan the great late alan clark around he he'd stepped out of parliament and he came back in 97 because he'd been rather bored and i said well now he's standing parliament he can't write his own diaries so somebody has to do it for him mm. um and watching him wander around uh, trying to be polite when he was then pursued by a man whose two daughters and wife had been bedded by him uh, was one of the most spectacular moments of my career. But, the, I mean, we're all being very indulgent. And there some people say, you know, he's accused, Hugh, of a very pretty serious thing. This is underage sex. She was 17. The model, Ruby Heartstealer, was her name, the Moroccan-born. No sniggering from you, Jay. It's not on her birth certificate, is it? No, she was a Moroccan immigrant to Italy, but 17 years old at the time. There's all kinds of accusations out there about him, bribery, drug drug trafficking, colluding with the mafia. It is, though, particularly this uh, uh, allegation that's got people exercised, women marching, saying this shows there's some kind of institutional sexism in the country. Should we be taking it seriously rather than slightly enjoying the larks that Maeve was referring I think, to? I think from the outside, what you look at this and you think, how on earth has this gone on for so long? Yeah. And in a way, I think the, 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 the answer to that is quite encouraging because I think this is a story, David Cameron would like this, uh, about localism. <laughs> In the, the, why Within the, the European Union. Well, yeah. Why have the Italians put up with him for so long? Because I don't think they take him very seriously. You know, I think that the important things in terms of how they live their lives and how villages are run um, doesn't really depend on him because it's much more federalist. And so You're actually right. he is entertainment value for them. He's comedy. Now, it could be that his entertainment value has run out, and that's why they'd like to get rid of him, and maybe there's another clown waiting in the rings. But I just don't think that See, they I really was going to go in the same him. direction, saying there may be something Italian about this. I hadn't thought of the sort of devolutionary system. I was thinking more something about their attitude to gender. There, a recent survey has shown that 90% of Italian men have never turned on a washing machine, and 70% have never used a stove. I mean, they do seem as if they're slightly in the dark ages on gender relations. You're getting may. top gear here, but I'm Irish. Um, there's there there's a certain kind of kindred spirit between Irish men and Italian men, I always feel, without possibly the pizzazz and the stick-on penises. <laughs> or magnetic. I, I do think it is local. I, I, what you say, Hugh, is exactly right. The, the whole Garibaldi project of unifying Italy never really worked. They still regard themselves as a bunch of city-states. If you, if you listen to the Florentines talk about those rogues over in Pisa, they're only about 20 miles apart. They really go for it and they really mean it. And I think the central government for them is, is just another layer of up there. And I think you're right. It's pure entertainment. I think it is very specifically Italian. I mean, because it is an interesting thought. If even just one of these charges had been levelled at a Blair or a Brown or a Cameron, well, you, you know, you write about these people all the time, Hugh, would they, they wouldn't have survived. Yeah, well, they wouldn't they? survive for five minutes. I mean, one is, who would be our equivalent if we just decided to have a leader who was just there for comedy? I don't know, Ricky, I don't know, Ricky Gervais? If well, you, you write about the mayor of London, Hugh. Well, I think well, you well may... Boris is close, isn't he? Yeah, Boris well, is close. But, but, but maybe there is a point here, the idea that being a character and being amusing is maybe an underestimated part of politics. I was just going to say, the, we talked right at the beginning about headlines of the week. The one I'm most disappointed about, Andrew Neil tweeted out on Wednesday that there was a big scandal about to break in Westminster. You, you retweeted it. That's how I know about it, Johnny. And we're on Friday and we haven't had our political scandal. Yeah, but the later tweet said it's not going to break till the week. 
weekend. Oh. But two things, two bits of caution about here. First, he yeah. said this would involve a senior Lib Dem. So, yeah, you know, so no surprise there. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is there is a rumour going around that the source for this story is a cab driver, which admittedly is a higher threshold of proof than the United States had for WMDs in Iraq with Curveball, which are also oh, revealed on, this week. You've done foreign assignments. You get all your information from cab, cab drivers. drivers. They know everything. It's important in the Bunga Bunga story. I mean, there are all these cab drivers giving evidence for ferrying these luscious lovelies to various exotic villains. Well, you take me to exactly my thought on this, which was how on earth has this not come out earlier? Obviously, these sex parties involve dozens, if not hundreds of people, and yet there is a sort of, to use perhaps another national cliche, a kind of omerta, which clearly applied where people who'd gone to the parties then kept it quiet. Well, I get all my political analysis from watching uh, the adaptations of Ordo Zen on BBC One, <laughs> and clearly that's just the way Italy works. Wasn't it a scandal waiting for a catchphrase? Isn't it Bunga Bunga, Bunga, Bunga that has somehow out. nailed this one? <laughs> yeah, now why is, why is this phrase taken off, do you think, Hugh, to describe Silvio Berlusconi in his party? Well, it's just fantastic in headlines, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Put that in uh, 72 points. Well, absolutely. And, and, and this probably is a, uh, it probably says that uh, his um, leadership of the country is at a different stage now than it was a year ago. And so whereby a year ago this might have been amusing, now it's not. It's kind of onomatopoeic as well, isn't it, for oh. what we're imagining Silvio and the young guests speak of for yourself Jonathan <laughs> well, everything, everything works what did you say Ruby's second name was Ruby Heartstealer don't worry I know these, these, I'll give you all the details and contact details later Hugh don't worry we'll leave that there for more on all things Silvio head to guardian.co.uk slash Italy The starting gun for the London 2012 Olympics was fired this week after the schedule of the Games and the various ticket prices were announced. It certainly won't be cheap. Tickets to the opening ceremony will cost £2,000, while front row seats for blue ribbon events like the 100 metres final are priced at 725 a pop. But in a country, and indeed a city, that would win the gold medal for moaning every time... Is anyone actually looking forward to hosting the biggest sporting show on earth? We've been joined here in the studio for this bit by Steve Busfield, who's the Guardian Sports Blog Editor, and will be masterminding our Olympic coverage. Steve, presumably you're a bit more excited than most people about the Olympics, so get us in the mood. Whip us up into a state of enthusiasm and anticipation for what's coming. Well, I am very excited, uh, and I was going to uh, actually use the same joke that you've just used about, you know, about uh, the British winning a gold medal for whinging. Um, I mean, you know, the the prices aren't anything like. I mean, there are two thousand pound tickets for the for the opening ceremony, but there are also twenty pound tickets oh, good for the I'm opening so ceremony. To hear that. So you know, so so there is a, there is a range. I mean, they are on the pricey side. But if you, I mean, if you've ever been to a, an athletics event, I mean, you know, what you get if you go in for a, for a session is you don't just get to want, see one event. You get to see you know half a dozen you know sort of running over three or four hours. Um, so you know, you see heats of the eight hundred meters and heats of the hundred meters and Be the final of the steeplechase with the excitement <laughs> of heats. <laughs> no, but, you know, but, and semi-finals and finals. And, you know, and they, the way they organise it, there's, there's always a final of something in a session. So, you know, so you, get fa- you do get fantastic value. And, I mean, the point is, I'm not sure that people are going to be going to every day of the Olympics. But, you know, but if, if you think, you know, the Olympics are only going to come to this country once in our lifetime, uh, you know, you can make a... a day out of it, a week out of it, you know, or a couple of days out of it, go and see the BMX, go and see the cycling. You can see quite a lot of things for free. You can see the marathon for free in lots of places. You can see the cycling for free in lots of places. Um, and, you know, and it really is one of those events that lives with you forever. I took my, uh, my mum for her birthday to the 2004 uh, Olympics in Athens, and we saw Kelly Holmes win gold in the 800 metres. And 
it was one of the most amazing sporting moments. But it is part of the I've appeal of that, that it was in Athens. I mean, is this the thing about the Olympics or the World Cup? We get excited when it's abroad and get a bit sort of blasé when it's on our own doorstep, Maeve. Well, I was in a tube station last night for some time, as one tends to be. <laughs> and they made that announcement, which blood starts to spurt out of your ears when they said, you know, the northern line is stuffed, the circle is suspended, the district is running with long delays, the Victoria has been suspended. But a good service is obtained on all other cer- lines. And the man beside me started to sing softly to himself, we shall not, we <laughs> shall not be moved. And the man on the other side of him said, this is just what it's going to be bloody like in the Olympics, isn't it? And I think that's what London feels. We're at breaking strain already without all these people coming. So with the city was going to seize up with congestion and traffic. Can you see that thing on my shoulder? That's a chip. <laughs> uh, the Olympic, this is my manor. Um, and, you know, I, 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 lived, I was brought up in that area and I worked in that area. You're talking about Stratford, uh, in, in where Stratford, the Olympic East London. Yeah. And, you know, I'm absolutely uh, dying for the Olympics. I think it's going to be fantastic. I think this is an area of London, an area of the country that's been neglected for over 100 years. Because of the Olympics, people with the money have been embarrassed into spending some money in that area. Has anyone actually been on the tour that they do? They do these great coach tour. But this is the Ken Livingston argument, which says, I, I don't give a damn about sport, but if this if this is what it takes to regenerate the East, East London, it was that's a fine. Con. But what about the actual, and that's what he's more or less admitted, but what about the Olympic Games itself? Jay, are you excited by the prospect or worried about traffic and tube lines? I am the least male man I know. Um, <laughs> my, my wife. It's a stiff competition in this building. I, I know, I know. My wife calls me the gayest straight man in London. I have no interest in spectator sports whatsoever, and yet. I am absolutely thrilled the Olympics are coming. We, um, I remember the moment I was on the train when it was announced that we'd won coming into Waterloo and then walking past the Eurostar terminal where they were celebrating with popping champagne corks. Um, and we are registered completely as a whole family um, on there and we will be buying tickets. That's our summer holiday next year. It's all planned. Um, it's, 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 our, it's our city. It's a fantastic thing. I love the Olympics, and yes. I will definitely be there. So, Steve, that's very encouraging, very heartening. I so maybe it's not all about gold. We're not going to get that gold medal in whinging. Maybe people are a bit more excited well, than we've been leading people to believe. We managed 60% enthusiasm in here, didn't we? <laughs> I, think, I, I think that's pretty good. I mean, you know, and August, August is one of those, those things. If, if you don't want to be around in August, you can quite easily leave the city. Um, one, of, uh, one of my colleagues uh, on the, uh, here in 2000 did a house swap with a family in Sydney who didn't want to be in Sydney when the Olympics were on and they went and stayed in their house and you know and they they had a fantastic time I'm not quite sure whether the Aussies enjoyed the English you're show. nudging us towards a record sixth week on this podcast of talking about house prices which I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad about I mean that is the thought isn't it that people, some people are thinking that that's what's going to happen to to London how Londony is this going to be I mean are we going to use uh, the actual sort of landmarks of the city they, I think there is beach volleyball on horse Guards Parade, unless that was just rumoured. Um, and there's the cycling down near Buckingham Palace, going down down the Mall, I think. Uh, down near me in West London, we're very chuffed. Yeah, and there's, there's go out in our carpet slippers and wave. I mean, because you you may were were our slightly doubting voice, because I have to say privately, I am rather enthusiastic about it too. Living in Hackney, it's going to be also our manor where this is happening. But you do write about arts and the archaeology. I mean, there is there is a kind of theatre to sport, isn't it? The stadium as Colosseum. You, you, you... There is. I mean, there's a bit of a history here of um, these huge sport institutions rapidly turning into ancient ruins, which would be slightly depressing I think if you live in the East End the um, the Preston's aren't great on this one but I'm not actually against it, I like things where people come together in some sort of cheerful 
goodwill to see other human beings do something that doesn't involve killing one another. I think that is, on the whole, a good thing. I shall put in for some £20 tickets, the cheapest I can get. Yeah, now that we've heard about that, we're all, we're all booking. Jay, you mentioned um, taking your children there. I mean, track and field, Olympi- 800 metres and all that, doesn't quite have the sex appeal of Premiership football and Champions League football. It doesn't get the sort of play. I wouldn't know, uh, because I have absolutely no interest in football. I, th- I think a World Championship level... Uh, track and field event is an extraordinary thing. I do remember watching my then, he was he was four or five, and um, there was some world championship uh, track race going on, and he sat up in his seat, oh. suddenly thinking, you know, it's it's about watching people really go for it. What uh, about this, Steve? Absolutely. Do you think people would be more excited if it was the World Cup, though? Is football now just so big uh, and oh. central that the Olympics, <laughs> the Olympics gets edged out? Well, no, but I, th- I, think, I, think that, I think the point that Joe was just making, that, you know, that, that if you've got a six, seven, eight-year-old child and they're watching football, they quite often get bored because they can't really follow what's going on. It's not that exciting all the time. It's a lot better in highlights. You're watching a running race. It's Everyone very clear, gets that. It's very clear what's going on. There are some people trying to run faster than other people around and around a track. It's, you know, it's incredibly exciting and simple. Thank you to our cheerleader-in-chief, Steve Busfield. He's cheered us up no end. And you can keep up to date with the very latest Olympics news at guardian.co.uk slash sport. All right, you'll have all seen that Larry the Cat has taken up residence with the Cameron family at number 10 Downing Street. So before we head off into the sunset, I want to know, please, what sort of pet do you think would enjoy its time living at George Osborne's house next door? Let's start with you, Hugh. A pet for George Osborne. You know, I can't think about George Osborne without thinking that that face he has when he's beating up on Labour um, at the dispatch box, that, that slightly crooked smile that he has. Sneer is perhaps uh, the, the word. Sneer, yeah. yeah. I mean, he always reminds me a bit of uh, Dick Dastardly from the mm. cartoon. And so on that basis, he'd have to have the dog and Muttley, wouldn't he? Fantastic. I, was, I always see him more as Flashman in Tom Brown's school days, you know, the um, cruel... Anyway, I mustn't have started editorialising. Let's go on, Maeve. I think we've already seen the number 11 pet, haven't we? It was that incredibly sleek, fat, chubby, utterly shameless and fearless rat that came out ah. from number 11 and went past number 10, distracting everybody's attention completely from the disastrous news of the day that was being discussed. That perfectly and day, summarises the relationship between hmm? number 10 and number 11, the I was cat just and the say, rat. One day we will see that rat come out the front door with a little <laughs> stick on its shoulder and a red spotty hanky and we will know the jig is finally up. <laughs> Jay. Well, how about a lion? Hasn't been fed for about a week. <laughs> Put it into number 11. I don't think uh, Mr. Osborne would get much out of it, but the rest of us would enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you to Jay Rayner, to Maeve Kennedy and Hugh Muir. You can leave your feedback on the show and find links to everything we've discussed at our blog, which is at guardian.co.uk slash weekinreview. Our producer is Ben Green. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.